0: Thank you very much. If there's anyone in here that can't hear me, please hold up your hand. I want to be sure you all suffer as much as I do. I don't <laughs> want
1: <you to> <laughs>
0: After that introduction I have two strikes again to start with. I want first to thank you people for inviting me to Charlotte. I've been intending to come back for 14 years and I didn't make it. And the warm welcome that you gave me has helped a whole lot. I suppose I will always have a little bit of a queasy feeling when I go to restaurant in a hotel, wondering if they remember the last time I was there. When I came in Thursday night, the bell captain told me, said, wait a minute, I want to take you up
1: myself.
0: And I said, oh, he's going to try to sell me a fine. And just for the record, nobody has ever said I didn't look like an alcoholic. But after we got in the elevator, he said, do you remember me? I said, I sure don't. He said, about 15 years ago, you spent three weeks drunk up on the 12th floor, and I fed you soup out of a spoon to get you able to come back home. That happens to me everywhere I go. (laughs) My name is Pelham Green. I have quit saying I'm an alcoholic. There was never anything anonymous about my drinking. The people who didn't see me, I called them up and told them. (laughs) And I don't suppose there's anything anonymous about my being in AA. Not too long ago, I was asked to talk in a city that I didn't know very well, and they told me they met at the Episcopal Church. And I stopped and asked a lady where the Episcopal Church was. And she explained to me how to get there. And just before I drove off, she turned around and said they'd meet around at the back. I'm not a psychologist I don't know why in the hell you drank whiskey And I don't even know why I drank And I don't care very much I haven't lost any time worrying about that So all I have to tell you is a story A story of what happened to me And I think that if anything could help me, there's a chance for anybody. I was born and reared in a small town in North Alabama. My family on both sides were doctors, pioneers of the town and county. And most of them ruined their whole life with alcohol. Brilliant doctors and surgeons. So I grew up hating whiskey, and had anyone have ever told me that I would someday, too, be a drunk? that's all I ever heard then. I never heard the word alcoholic. You were just a plain drunk. Had they have told me that, I would have thought they were crazy. I can remember back when I was just a small child, that when my mother heard that one of my uncles was coming to spend the night. She hit all of the Bay Rum and the Camper and the P. Rooney. <laughs> and that was back in the days before people had become enlightened enough to know that all of that was good to drink.
1: <laughs>
0: so, I hated whiskey through childhood. I think my childhood probably was like all of yours, except my mother died at the age of nine, and I started my resentment. I resented the fact that my mother died and other people's mothers lived. My father was very busy, and I was left more or less on my own with plenty of money to do anything I wanted and to go where I wanted. Now, the class of people whom I would have normally associated with, I didn't like. And to be honest with you, I still don't like. (laughs) And the class that I did run with, I know now only accepted me because I had money. So I grew up with a feeling of not belonging anywhere. Now, I tried whiskey twice during my high school days. One afternoon after a football game, one of the boys whose father was county commissioner had drove one of the county trucks to school, and he also had a half a gallon of wild whiskey. And after the football game, we went down and drank that whiskey. And he also had some dynamite in the truck. And I blew up the outdoor toilet. (laughs) And the principal told me that they could do without me for the rest of the year. The next time I drank any whiskey, I happened to be passing the city jail. And it was full of drunks. And I felt very sorry for them. And as I knew where the keys were, I turned them all out. (laughs) And only the fact that my father was mayor kept me from being in any serious trouble. Well, that frightened me a little. And I didn't drink anymore. I didn't drink any through college. But I came out of college in 1930, right in the beginning of the Depression. And I came back home and married a childhood sweetheart and went to work for automobile concerns. Now, in the 30s, the big thing was money. And back during the days of 28 and 29, There had been two alcoholic salesmen working at this place, and they had sold every moonshiner and bootlegger on Sand Mountain automobile on credit, and they still owed for it. So it became my job to try to collect that money, and they didn't have any money. But I collected a lot of whiskey, and it wasn't too long, I'm sure until I passed over the line. I remember on one occasion the man whom I was working for didn't have the money to pay me with, and the people owed him for the automobiles, and I devised a scheme. I would collect from them in whiskey, and I would sell the whiskey and pay myself. So I went out and got 20 gallons. And I brought it back in and sold it to a bootlegger just above town for $2 a gallon. And he didn't have the money to pay me with. It. And he said I'd have to collect it after he sold the whiskey. During the time he was selling this whiskey, I was going back and forth buying it at 50 cents a pint. When I went to settle up with him, I owed him $8. Dollars. my only experience in the bootlegging
1: game.
0: <laughs> but I began to be where I would go out on Monday morning and sometimes I didn't get back till Saturday. And the time grew longer. And my wife, who was always a very unreasonable woman, <laughs> began to ask questions. if there's anything that an alcoholic hates, it's for somebody to ask him where he's been when he don't even know himself. (laughs) So life at home began to be very unhappy. That went on for about a year and a half. And during this time, everything had happened to me. I began to have those visitors that come through the wall and sit on your bed and point at you. I even got to know some of
1: them. (laughs) They even got to
0: where they didn't worry me because they were familiar. I remember once I woke up in a hotel and it was a man about three foot high. Was a big head sitting at the head of my bed. And I didn't get very excited. I had a quart of whiskey and I took a big drink. And I looked back and he was still there. Well, that was something unusual. They usually went away. I took another drink and he still sat there. Finally, in desperation, I handed him the bottle <laughs> and he took a drink. I thought, my God, now they've gone to drinking my whiskey. (laughs) And I immediately went into delirium treatment. (laughs) When I was able to be up, they told me that they had got worried about me, and there was a dwarf working in the hotel, and they'd put him through the transom to watch me. Well, I gave him a wide berth after that. And I'm not sure whether I still believe it was or not. And then I began to have convulsions. Every time I got sober, I had convulsions. The first one frightened me very much. I stayed sober three days after that. And I went on to have many more. And I even told my wife that I thought they helped. I felt a lot better after I had one of them. (laughs) But one morning I came home and I found a note and she said she'd gone home and if I wanted her to come after And I loved my wife very much and I stayed sober one whole day and I went over and told her if she'd come back, I'd never take another drink as long as I live. That was all Monday. Tuesday morning, the man whom I'd been working for was running for judge of And he came to my house and asked me if I would go out on the mountain and get a man and his wife and sister and bring them in town to vote. And I told him I would be glad to. The man is dead now. And I don't think he ever knew it. But he lost four votes that day. We didn't get back to town until almost a week after the election. And when I got home, I found another note. She'd gone again. After studying it over, I decided she was meddling in my business anyhow,
1: and I just let her stay.
0: And I knew that she would live the rest of her life regretting that she ever left me. Much to my surprise, I see her now occasionally. And she seems to be doing all right. But after she left, I quit even pretending to do anything. And I stayed drunk. During this time I was drunk. A lot of things happened in my hometown. They even built a hotel there that I didn't know it was there till it was finished. And you would have to know my hometown to realize what I'm talking about. So one Sunday, I was going to a bootlegger's walking up the street, and they'd built a new church along there. Had I known it, I would never have dared to pass it. But some old women saw me going by, and they came out after and I was just too weak to resist, and I went in. When I got in there, I decided, now, maybe this will work. I'll just join the church. And I joined the church. And the day they took me in the church, it was a regular field day. Everybody in town came. And I resented that. It wasn't long until I was teaching the Sunday school class. And I wasn't fit to teach the Sunday school class. The only difference was that I was just sober, miserably so. And the greatest mistake that church ever made, they put me on the board of stewards. And by that time, I was really wanting to get drunk. And I was against everything that came up. I even wanted to cut the minister's salary. <laughs> and you can know about how popular that made me. So when I got drunk and got out, till this day, nobody has ever asked me to come back.
1: The only thing that was good about that,
0: my father died during this time, thinking that I would never drink anymore. And when he died, he left me enough. Had I taken care of it, I would never have had to worry anymore. But two weeks after his death, I was drunk again. And I was in jail practically every day. I'd been in jail as much as three times in one day, the same day. I ran an account with the city. I paid them up the first of the month just like you pay your grocery bill.
1: <laughs>
0: and after about a year of this, I decided that I was being imposed on and that I would just leave Fort Payne and never return. I made a deed to all the property I had and just mailed it to my sister and left Fort Payne. I was drunk all over the world. I tried marijuana down on the border, and I even smoked opium in the dens of San Francisco. And I wound up in Europe, drunk for about six or seven months. I know once when I was in Paris, that I came back to the hotel. I'd been gone somewhere that I didn't even know myself for about a week. And I had a telegram from a, a sister of mine who's an old maid schoolteacher, saying that she's coming over with a party of schoolteachers. And when I looked at the date, that was the day she was arriving. And there I was, sick, about dead, so I rushed down to get some whiskey. While I was drinking, a woman came in. I thought she was a very beautiful woman. I'd been told later in no uncertain terms that she wasn't. I understood no French. She understood no English. But we both knew the word drink. I got to tell her my trouble and she got the idea that I wanted her to go with me. And after a few more drinks, I thought it might be a good idea myself. (laughs) So we got a bottle of cognac and went back to the hotel, and they had arrived. The lobby was full. My sister tried to get out the back, but I called her. (laughs) And she was introducing me and this girl was following along with that quartz, And I guess she thought they were sick. They all had their nose turned up because she offered every one of them a drink as we went by. I haven't gotten over that yet completely. I will still hear about that. But I wound up back in New York. And I wound up on the Bowery. And for three months, I made the flop houses and the missions along the bow. I had money at home in the bank, but I was too full of fear to even wire for that money. I was afraid they wouldn't send it, or if they did, that I couldn't get it cash when they got there. Finally, one day, a man who ran one of the missions stopped me and got to question me, and he helped me wire home and get that money to come home on. And when I got home, I started the same old deal again. Finally, so the man whom I'd had so much to do with, election judge of probate, offered me a job. It's county Account. And I stayed drunk on that job for the next three years. I took a pint of whiskey to work with me every morning. And it got so the sheriff would search my desk every time I left and pour out my whiskey. So I got smart enough, I went to hiding in his office. <laughs> and as I signed all of the paychecks, about two days before payday, the sheriff would get out and make the round of the bootleggers, hunting me, trying to get me sober enough to get the payroll out. And it got to where the bootleggers wouldn't even let me stop. I had to just reach out and get it as I went by. And that made me very unhappy because I always like to talk with those ladies. They might offer you another drink if you stayed around. But in
1: 1938,
0: I was beginning to have a little trouble with the county commissioner. And in order to make them mad and hurt their feelings, I volunteered for service. And much to my disappointment, I was accepted in the Army Specialist Corps. And I know the Board of Revenue breathed a breath breath of relief, because the recommendation they gave me, Franklin D. Roosevelt would have been proud of. They was going to be sure that I didn't come back. Now, I had really found what I'd been looking for. I was auditing Army installations. And I never was anywhere long at a time. And I got in all my reports. And I doubt if anybody ever looked at them anyway. The only trouble I had was when they moved me from one place to another. I would be anywhere from three days to two weeks late getting up. And I, I had a hard time explaining I remember once in Atlanta, Georgia, I had 15 minutes between trains and I hired a nigger and a rolling chair and went down in a back alley in Atlanta and got a pint of whiskey. For the next three days, this nigger and his brother rolled me in that rolling chair. And invariably, after every train line, 15 minutes after it ran, we come rushing into the station missed the train. Finally in busy wartime, the station master held the train 15 minutes to get me on. But he put me on the wrong train. I went up the road about 25 miles and they put me off of it and onto another train back into Atlanta. When I came through the gates of the station the station master took his cap off and threw it down on the floor and said, hell, I quit. I finally got on up to Oak Ridge, Tennessee and whiskey had really been getting to catch up with me and I wound up in the hospital. And I don't think that the Army doctors really ever knew what was wrong with me. They suggested that I take a leave of absence and go home and rest. And I did. I live exactly three blocks from the bus station. And when I got home, it took me three weeks to get from the bus station home. And I stayed drunk all I them. And again, I decided the environment was bothering me. So I came here to shop. And I had no trouble getting the job. I never did have. I had trouble keeping them. And I stayed here for the next three years. You know, I always like to go to new places. They don't know much about you. And you can be gone on Mondays. And sometimes on Tuesdays, and they'll really believe you've been sick. But there's always some smart aleck <laughs> that comes along and sticks his nose in your business, and then you've hit. So I began to have in trouble here.
1: <laughs>
0: and finally, my boss told me, he said, "'Fellum, I don't want to fire you. "'You do enough work for two people when you're here.'" if you'll get here every week by
1: wind.
0: (laughs) I won't say another word to you. (laughs) The very next week, I got here on (laughs)
1: Thursday.
0: I stayed here three years. Every vacation... Every holiday, I intended to go home, and I never did get to start it, old John. Finally, in 1947, I made up my mind that I was going to get home, and I bought me a fifth of whiskey. And I didn't take a drink till I got on the bus. The next morning, when I woke up, I knew by the smell I was in jail. I'm hard. <laughs> I finally got the jailer to the door and he said I fell off of the bus in Murphy, North Carolina. <laughs> and I asked him if they would get the city judge down that I was very sick. And they got it. And I told him that a short time before that I'd been in a serious automobile accident. And that I only had a short time to live. And I was trying to get home. And that the doctor had told me if I drank a little along the way that I might make it. (laughs) And I must have convinced that man. For he sat down and got me a pint of whiskey. I was just as drunk as I was when I come into Murphy. <laughs> and I know they'll always wonder why I came back towards Charlotte instead of going to Fort Penn.
1: <laughs> so
0: I didn't make it that time. <laughs> and Christmas of, ni- Christmas of 1948, of 1947, rather, I was determined to get home. And I got off from work on the 23rd day of December. And I remember it was raining, and it began to turn into sleet. It was a very miserable day. And I bought two cups of whiskey to take home to give to my friend. (laughs) I got to looking out the window at that sleet and ice, and I decided I needed to drink myself. And I remember taking three drinks. The next morning when I woke up and looked out the window, the sun was shining, the birds were singing, and the palm trees were green. (laughs) And I thought, well, I played hell this time. (laughs) They'd been telling me I was gonna die. But had I stopped to think a few minutes, there wouldn't have been any birds palm trees where I'd been. I finally found the telephone and called down and they said I was in a hotel in Miami, Florida, that I came in on the plane the night before. I made up my mind right then and there that I would never be able to get home again. wasn't any use in trying, there was no use in working, the hell was (laughs) off. And I got back to (laughs) shop. Then in a hotel in the next block, I just quit doing anything. I let the man at the hotel worry about the hotel business. (laughs) And I'd already quit eating long before, so that didn't bother me. I managed for whiskey from Christmas up until April of that year. Once during this period, I woke up in the home of a dentist friend of
1: mine,
0: and i had lots of hangovers in my life, but I never felt as bad in my life, and when I got able to feel myself, I found out I didn't have any teeth. His wife came in the room
1: and I asked her what in the hell had happened
0: to me. And she said, Last night you complained of a toothache. And Doc pulled one and you said that wasn't the right one. And then he pulled some more and you still said it wasn't
1: right. And
0: after you'd pulled so many, Since you both decided you might as well pour all of them. (laughs) And she said you had a half a gallon of white whiskey and both of you were drinking out of it and that you couldn't tell if it was blood or whiskey. And she said I'm leaving. I've been sick all night long. And she did. And she hasn't been back. of that year, the man whom I'd been working for called me up and asked me if I'd come out and make out some final reports. And I told him I would. So I went out and made out those reports. And for the first time in my life, I told him that I was a hopeless drunk, that there wasn't any use in my even taking the job. And he told me, he said, I have a brother-in-law who was just like you, and said he went down to something they call Alcoholics Anonymous, and said, he's been sober five years, and will you go down there? And I said, yes, I'll be glad to. And I drank a half a pound of whiskey, and I went down to the Central Group on West Trade Street. And when I walked in, there must have been a hundred people there. And they were happy, laughing and talking. And I knew immediately that every one of them was drunk. <laughs> because nobody could be that happy so. Well, they didn't know what I was about drunk. And I wondered why somebody hadn't told me about that before. I enjoyed it. I even got up and said something. <laughs> the next morning, a man called me down at the hotel and said a woman had called him for help, and that he couldn't get there right then, and asked me if I'd go around and talk to her until he came. And I told him I'd be glad to. And there I was about half drunk, and I knew nothing about AA, but I got that woman sober, and I got myself sober. We both got in jail. That the
1: hell
0: were they hate? I've never had any trouble getting in jail by myself.
1: <laughs>
0: and I certainly don't need
1: help.
0: <laughs> Finally they asked me if I would go see a psychiatrist. And I told them I'd do that.
1: So I went down and I questioned
0: the psychiatrist. And after I got through talking, he said, why don't you go to AA? I said, Oh no. I tried that. It wouldn't work. And he finally came to the conclusion that I had something bad wrong with me he said that I was an alcoholic with a schizophrenic person out. And you know, I was really proud of that. I didn't know what in the hell it meant. But I knew that anybody that had that much wrong with them had a perfect right to drink. So then he suggested, he says, why don't you go home? You're running from things." I said, oh, no. I've been trying for three years. And I can't get home. they called a cab from my hometown to come after me. <laughs> and this time I got home. <laughs> that summer of 1948 I was drunk again all
1: summer.
0: There was some little differences though. Whiskey was hard to get and I'd quit drinking whiskey. I was drinking everything that had alcohol in it. Vanilla extract, bay rum, rubbing alcohol, just anything. I met a minister on the street one day, and he said to me, Tom said, you invariably smell like a mixture between a barbershop and a bakery. <laughs> and it made me mad. <laughs> now, I wasn't getting in jail any of this summer. And the reason why, In order to put you in jail they had to go up a long flight of steps. And I got smart, I wouldn't walk. And I held to the steps all along. And they dodged me. They didn't want to fool with. After I got sober a man told me he was sitting in the car with them one night, and they saw me coming up the street holding to the wall, and said one of them turned around and said, Let's get out from here. (laughs) Yonder comes fellows. If he gets in here, we never will get him out. (laughs) So they wouldn't put me in jail. I decided I'd go to the asylum. And I went up to the courthouse. Drunk. And I told the girl that came out that I wanted to make out an application for an insane asylum. She was all smile. She went and got the blanks and brought them out. And said, now, who did you want these for? And I said, for myself. And she disappeared. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, the sheriff had me carry me home. Now, you have really hitboxes when they won't have you in jail, and they won't even let you go to the M <laughs> especially people who have known you all of your life. But now, I did get in jail the last part of that summer, I made them book me. And they gave me a 10-day jail. Sentence. And I remember sitting in city court that day. The picture of the former mayor with my grandfather and my father and three of my uncles. And you know, I never once thought that I ought to be ashamed. The thought that struck my mind was this is a hell of a thing to do to anybody whose people have done as much for this town (laughs) as mine. (laughs) And while I was in jail, They came down and told me that they were organizing an AA group there that night and said, if you'll go, we'll turn you out. And I said, no, thank you. I'll just stay in (laughs) jail. Now, I had managed to keep my home in Fort Payne. And I used to boast about it very much, that most alcoholics wasn't that smart. They'd lost their home. And I had mine. The reason why I had that home, my father left it, to where it couldn't be so. And I never had anything to make me as mad in my life <laughs> to think that he thought that I wasn't have sense enough to keep my home. <laughs> well, now, I'd had some people living in this house all summer, and I was staying well. Well, they was getting pretty tired of it. Finally, one Sunday morning, I went into the bathroom. And the day before, they'd had a recall Hall sale downtown. You buy a bottle of something, and you get another bottle of for a penny. Anyhow, I found four bottles of Lydia E. Pinkham's compound.
1: <laughs>
0: and I sincerely hope that she never had any urgent need for it, for I drank all four of them. <laughs> that was the straw that broke the camel's back he
1: moved
0: out. On September the 11th, 1948, I had been drunk that day. Been drunk on k I don't know if any of you have ever drank it or not, but it's a very delicious drink. It's made out of soap suds and ethyl alcohol. The only trouble you have with it is to keep from blowing bubbles when you talk. any work done on my house in a long time and these people had moved out and they turned off the lights and the water and I remember that night it was raining and the rain was leaking through on the floor. Four men came into my room and they were carrying camels. It looked exactly like a wake and I remember wondering why in the hell they didn't bring two more in a coffee. One of them was a the Methodist minister, ministered on. He himself was an alcoholic, but I didn't know it at that time. And he told me, he said, fellow, I have lost the whole summer fooling with you. And I said, well, nobody asked you to in the first
1: place.
0: He said, you are the biggest liar that I've ever heard talk. You have built a wall around yourself that nobody can get in. And I am washing my hands of you. And those four men went out. And I got to study. Sure enough, I didn't have any friends. Nobody ever came to my house. Nobody came to see me. For the first time in 20 years, I got up and I got out on my knees, and I asked God to either let me get sober or to let me die. When I got up, I remembered at that one meeting I came to here in Charleston, you people gave me a little blue book that said, A Way of Life. I don't know why I kept that book, but somehow I think that God must have had a hand in it because I remembered I had it in my trunk. And I got up and I went to reading that book, and for the first time in many years, I began to feel like that maybe there was hope for me. Now, these four men hadn't left. They'd gone out on the porch. And they came back in and they brought almost a fifth of whiskey. Nobody ever gave me a drink of whiskey anymore. And nobody had a little sense to turn the whole bottle over to them. They just laid it down on the table and said, there it is. Well, I never took a drink of that whiskey. Now, I've never had one since, by the grace of God and the help of you people. I did a lot of thinking that night and a few nights to come, and I think my thoughts went back to my childhood days, for they were the only happy days that I'd ever known. And I remembered my mother as she lay down, and she turned and told me, said, Fellas, I'm going to have to go, but always put your faith in God and you'll be all right. Well, I strayed a long ways from that teaching, but somehow I like to think that those prayers did go with me down through those days. Of those four men that came to see me that night, two have since died drunk, and the other two, as far as I know, are drunk today. But nobody... to stay there and feel sorry for myself. And I knew then and there that if I didn't get any more out of AA than I was, that I might just as well be drunk. And when I came in, I took the first step. I'm not sure I knew what an alcoholic was, but if it had anything to do with alcohol, I was it. And I balked on that second step. I knew I hadn't been insane, I was a smart operator. And that day I got to thinking. And I thought back one time before my father died. We only had a few taxes in my hometown, and you had to have a tax in order to go get whiskey. And he had gone around and asked all of them to please not call me after whiskey anymore. And I called every one of them, and nobody came. Finally, in desperation. I called an ambulance. The ambulance backed up to my door, and they got me out and put me in the back. At that time, the nearest hospital was Gadsden, 45 miles from my hometown. And they didn't ask me a word until they started in the city. And they said, which hospital do you want to go to? I said, I don't want to go to a hospital. I'm going to the whiskey store. And it made the man mad. But as I hadn't paid him, and he knew I wouldn't unless he did, he carried me to the whiskey store. And he was so mad, I went in and came back out with a peck slack full of whiskey. And he was so mad that he took a drink. <laughs> Coming back up the road, we kept taking drinks, and when we got home, I was driving. yard with a sign wide open. All the neighbors were gathered in. They'd been expecting me to be brought home dead for a long time. And there I came out with that tech sack full of wisdom. My father said he was so embarrassed that he thought he'd sell everything he had and leave. And I thought it was smart. They'd never stop me from getting a taxi again, and they didn't. And I remembered another occasion when I was going to school at the university, the university grounds and the state insane asylum grounds adjoined one another. And back in those days, boys didn't have automobiles like they do now. And we used to take our dates and walk out through the grounds of the state of asylum. And I remembered one Sunday having a date with a very beautiful girl from Florida, whom I was very much in love with at that time. And we were walking out through the ground. They had let some of the enemies out in the yard. And we were looking at them through a wire fence. About like you would at a lion in a cage. And there was an old lady sitting right inside the fence knitting. And she looked up at me and said, You better get back in here. (laughs) they catch you out there, they'll give you hell. <laughs> well, that ruined my whole day. <laughs> Especially as the girl kept sniggering about
1: nothing
0: all afternoon. <laughs> well, I never had another date with that girl. But I've often thought down through the years how right that old lady was. I ought to have been over in her But I went to work on these 12 steps. Somebody told me I should take inventory, and I ought to write down the assets and the liabilities. Well, I filled three or four pages of the liabilities. When I got on the asset side, the only thing I could think of was I still did it.
1: <laughs> and that
0: wasn't worth very much because I'd taken most of the depreciation on that. Since that time, I've been working on these 12 steps. I made some progress. I'll never finish them. That's why I'm here tonight. I'm working on the 12 steps. I'm trying to tell somebody that what AA did for me, it can do for them. I believe as much as I believe I'm standing here tonight that the 12 steps of AA were as much inspired by God as were the Ten Commandments. I think that one day that God took pity on us poor alcoholics, and he put all the great philosophies and all the great teachings in one little bummer and sent them down to Bill and Bob so that even anyone as wrong dumb as I could understand and find sobriety and find happiness. AA has meant so much to me. I have thousands of friends from coast to coast. I found a God that I don't understand. Not a God of vengeance, but a God of love. I don't know how much time I have left here, and it doesn't bother me too much anymore. But what time I do have left, I want to tell somebody the things that have happened to me and the bonus of 14 happy years that God and AA have given me that I never expected to have. As far as the material things of life are concerned, I can be considered a failure because I will leave this world with much less than I came into it with. But I have found the only thing that you can ever take with you when you die, the love of your fellow man. And when my time comes to go, I can think of no epitaph that I'd like better than the first verse of an old poem that I've always loved. Sunset Claire and Evening Star And one clear call for me. And may there be no morning at the bar when I put out to sea, I think.